Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Welcome to episode 100. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but I did want to take a second to thank you at the beginning of the show for supporting the Life as Leadership podcast. Today is going to be, in some ways, like every other day. But every other day is great because we have great leaders that provide great insight for us to help us on our leadership journey. I also want to give a quick shout out to our Unsung Hero episode 62 because in case you haven't been listening all the way back, we used to have a discussion show that went along with every episode, but we had to change some things around at episode 38. So technically, episode 62 was our 100th show, and so I'm going to have that linked in the show notes below just to give a little recognition to that. Now, we're going to get to a little bit more about today's guest in just a second, but first... Do you want to accelerate your leadership success? There's a way you can do that for free, and it's called the MindScan. This assessment is an inventory based on the Nobel-nominated Hartman Value Profile, and it measures your capacity to make value judgments concerning you and the world around you. Instead of simply understanding how you behave, it objectively measures why you behave the way you do. Align your thinking strengths with your leadership goals by applying to take the MindScan today. All you need to do is apply by emailing community at lifeasleadership.com. You'll get a unique link and the opportunity to review your results. Both the assessment and review call are totally free. If you want to understand the how and why of your decision making, in order to more quickly get the results you want, the mind scan can be your next step to success. Once again, community at lifeasleadership.com. Now, on to today's interview. Our guest today is an internationally acclaimed expert in the fields of leadership, management, and organizational culture. His work has helped some of the most prominent leaders and companies in the world, including former presidents of the United States, Fortune 100 companies, and professional sports coaches to become more innovative and culturally vital. He and his son, Ryan, have recently released a new book called Choose Love, Not Fear, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation that Unleash Human Potential. Here is Gary Heil. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I like to start off every interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. Are you ready for these? I'm ready. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? I think my first reaction to that is I was having an interview years ago with a guy named Bill Campbell, who was the CEO of Intuit at the time. And I asked him for the one piece of advice he would give a millennial leader. And he said that the first thing and the only thing he would probably tell them was to let go a little. His premise was that if you think you have the answer, then teams can't come up with the complex solutions to complex problems that we face today. I think there isn't a day that goes by that I don't remember Bill telling me that. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is... Well, I, I guess the, I, I do believe that a leader is a person who creates a culture where ordinary people 
can do extraordinary things. Uh, I, I think that leaders are incredibly authentic, uh, and I believe that leaders basically understand that it's not about them. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? I think every leader should ask routinely, if, if they weren't there today, if a new person took their job, what's the first thing the new person would do? Then you should just ask, if, if a new person would do that, why aren't I? What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? You know, the best book I know uh, is a little stilted to read, but I'd read Douglas McGregor's Professional Manager that Warren Bennis uh, published after Douglas's, uh, McGregor's death. It basically, 60 years ago, has every issue outlined that we've published about or written about or talked about since. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? To better understand the difference between what they espouse and the way they act. And finally, we have an arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Uh, I think the answer to that's got to be both. I mean, we need to ask why more often in terms of why we were successful, not just why we're unsuccessful. I think we underestimate the effect of luck in our lives, especially in organizations. So we need to be more fact-based in our understanding of success and failure. But I think you're onto something with why not, because I think one of the biggest failures for leaders is a lack of imagination. And why not? If not, if not us, why can't we do that? I mean, remarkable teams just do what everybody else thinks can't be done. Well, Gary, we are here today to talk about your new book, Choose Love, Not Fear, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation that Unleash Human Potential. I'd love for you to give us an overview of the book and talk to us a little bit about the study behind it, as well as the experience of writing this book with your son. The writing of the book was really interesting in that we started out almost a decade ago and we wanted to know why leaders talked a better game than they played. Everybody can talk a good game. But when it comes to playing the game of leadership and unleashing the potential of people, I just think we haven't gotten very far. So we started asking questions of leaders, trying to find out what it would take for them to play like they talked. And we found some things we should have already known that culture inhibits, present culture, present successes inhibit the way leaders act. But there was a small group of leaders that we interviewed who were just different than the rest. They were just clearly playing at a different level. And when you were in their presence, one thing that jumped off the page was the way they treated each other on those teams. When you walked into their presence, they were just had deeper relationships, they cared more, they were all in, they had each other's backs. You could feel the difference. And I started to think about that with the first couple because 25 years earlier, a guy named Jan Carlson, who wrote a book called Moments of Truth, a mentor of mine, told me that the first choice every leader needs to make is to choose love or choose fear. He thought you couldn't choose both. But if you built a culture of love, it would be very different than a culture of fear. And I thought I understood it. 25 years ago. Turns out, in retrospect, I don't think I got it. I think that it, it took a crazy football coach in Clemson, South Carolina, to teach me what Jan Carlson was trying to teach me three decades ago. The first time I met Dabo Sweeney, he was telling everybody he was going to win a national championship because people loved each other on his team. And you don't doubt him unless it's at your own risk. 
And he started telling people that, and you watched the team, and you started to see it differently. And then I went out and interviewed a football coach in Concord, California, in De La Salle High School, who hadn't lost a game in 12 years. And he didn't want to talk about football. He wanted to talk about the relationship he had with people on his team and the relationship the people on the team had with each other. And then I was talking to Alan Mulally, who turned Ford around, who was the, also the president of Boeing Commercial Aircraft before he was the CEO of Ford. And Alan said, Gary, the first thing you got to do is you got to love them up before you coach them up. And I was surprised by how many people who used the word love. And I was amazed at the depth of the relationship on those teams that won consistently, but also created an environment where people could reach their potential. I saw a wrestling coach in Poway, California, a wrestling coach that sat down writing love letters to his team at the end of every year, just telling how much he cared about them. And I think in a world that cares about productivity and profits and EPS and how many games you win, sometimes I think we've lost track that organizations are essentially human and that the depth of our relationships go a long way to determining the kind of effort that we get. So the book evolved from there, and these exemplary teams started to teach us how the best leaders really separate themselves from the nearly good ones. So it seems that the best leaders have figured out this idea of choosing love over fear. At the same time, I feel like that's something that's not talked about too much, especially when I looked at the title of your book, Choose Love, Not Fear, thinking about a leadership book that didn't seem like a title that you would expect to see. Why do you think that the action or the discussion around choosing love over fear is not as prevalent as the actual actions that great leaders are taking in choosing that love over fear? I think the candid answer is I don't think we care as much about people as we care about profits. I mean, I know that no leader walks around and says, oh, I don't really care about people. Everybody cares about people. Everybody says they care about people. But I do think we have evolved so that we care more about shareholders than other stakeholders, more about profits than people, more about winning than building relationships. And I think that even in the Ohio State studies years ago, when they talked about people, they talked about your concern for people. We grew out of an era where in the military, we were taught not to fraternize with people we led or don't get too close socially because it'll make it difficult to make difficult decisions. We come out of an era where we undervalued relationships in general, and then a preoccupation with profits and winning at all costs have only made that worse. And so I don't think we think in terms of that, and I don't think we have listened to what social psychologists have taught us in the last 30 years, that the depth of our relationship in organizations, we call it engagement, in the task itself, really has an outsized effect on the level of production we get on a team. So you have this 10-year study of 700 leaders. You've talked about some of the things that you've found already. What are some of those things that maybe were surprising that you discovered that could also relate to the actions that leaders might be taking this week in their own organizations and on their own teams? Well, I think that we've, we, we talk a game and we don't do many of them. I mean, the things that we address are just the, the tip of the iceberg in a way. For instance, the vision word has been worn out so much that you can't say the word vision without getting a smirk, right? 
But yet we went into one company and we asked 65 leaders in that company, directors or above, leaders in the company. And we said, what would you like your team to be doing 18 months from now that they're not doing now? In other words, what's your vision? What are you trying to accomplish in the next 18 months? Not a single one of the 65 leaders could with clarity in any way describe something that they want to do 18 months in the future that's fundamentally different than what they're doing now. Their default position was always, we'll be like we are today, only 10% better. Now, I don't know about you, but when somebody says, follow me, the first question I ask is, where are we going and why are we going there? Hmm. And as a leader, if we can't answer those questions in a compelling way, who's going to follow you? I mean, we don't say, come follow me. Where we're going 18 months from now is kind of where we are now, only a little better. (laughs) You don't turn your life upside down for that. And so we talk about vision to the point that we're almost tired of the word, but we have less vision than we need. Or I think we talk about better leadership, but bad leaders are everywhere. I mean, if you go into, if you, if you talk to somebody over lunch and you say that you have a bad boss, you almost can't tell a story without them wanting to, to, to make it worse, right? I have one worse than yours. Or just our whole theory of motivation. I was the head of three public company compensation committees on the board of directors. And all I saw were a stream of compensation consultants who would come into my office and tell me that if I found a more effective way to bribe the management team, they would do better. Mm. And yet every piece of research for the last 70 years says that's not true and that there's no correlation between incentive compensation and organizational performance. In fact, if there is a correlation, it's negative. And so we have these words we use, like motivation and setting high expectations, and mutual accountability. We just don't do them very often. So the finding for me is we have all the right words. We just don't do the acts. So to get around that, would you recommend creating new language around what we need to do? Or what does it take for leaders to begin taking the things that they know they need to be doing and probably are saying that they should be doing, but aren't actually doing more seriously? I think we have to care about the depth of leadership and we have to be willing to change the culture. I mean, leaders create 70% of the organizational culture, the values and shared assumptions that guide people's decision-making. Leaders are 70% of creating that. What we don't realize is that the culture, once it's created, limits how people act in that culture. It, It affects how leaders act in that culture. So most of today, leaders are going along to get along. They act like their predecessors did. They perpetuate things like rank ordering people and performance appraisal on one to five scales and grades in school, things that don't necessarily enhance the thing we're trying to do, but we perpetuate it. And we don't know why, we just do. And we, we have reasons why we do, but they're, they hardly ever stack up against what we know about the social science research. But we know, well, it worked for Disney or it worked for this company or that company, and therefore we perpetuate it. There are a, a lot of constituencies that protect practices which limit our ability to lead, and not the least of which we talked about. Bad leaders are hardly ever held to account. How many times in companies do we know that everybody knows who the bad leader is who just frustrates people or just is not very good at helping people, 
But yet that person, if they're a technical expert, is promoted or they've been there longer. So they're they're just part of the woodwork. You can't get rid of them or a bad teacher in a school. And everybody knows who they are, but they're protected in one way or another. If we're going to get better at leading, we got to start by getting rid of bad leaders, holding them to account. And we have to ask good leaders to start to do things that are likely to, to move the needle. And we're not doing either very effectively. As seen by Gallup, another year, Gallup shows that 30%, around 30% of the people in North America are highly engaged in their work. Just 30%. And I think it might be 34% this year. We're up 1%. And we celebrate, look, engagement's up. Now, only 70% of the people in the country are not highly engaged. It's sort of an indictment of the way we lead. So my guess is that there are a number of people listening to this right now that can relate to what you're saying, where they feel like they're using language that they have heard and that has become popularized, but there may not be too much weight behind it. If that's the case, and if if leaders really do want to help their organizations move forward, take something like like a vision, that a mission statement, things like that, they're they're talked about and maybe not used to the extent that they should be. How could a leader begin shaping or reshaping culture to where those conversations are more meaningful and actually make a difference in the life of their organization? Wow, that's a great question. How do you start to reshape the culture? I, I think people have to first see that the old culture is not good enough to get you to the future. I think that to use, I think, Kurt Lewin's term, I think we need to look and unfreeze ourselves to say, this is just not good enough to get us to the future. And there's a lot of evidence that that day is coming. But beyond that, I think one of the things that would help in reshaping culture to be more engaging of all the things we could pick I think leaders have to stop taking responsibility for the motivation of others. When I said Douglas McGregor's book is the one I would read, it's for a reason. Douglas McGregor, his famous line in the late 1950s, only interesting because it's old because it's been around that long and we haven't listened to it, is he said that when he was asked, how do you motivate people? McGregor's answer, famous answer was, you can't motivate people. You don't have the power to motivate people. The only thing you can do is create an environment where already motivated people are willing to come make a maximum contribution. Mm. It's more profound than the words tend to be seen. What he's saying is you don't motivate people. As a leader, you're not in the motivation business. You're in the opportunity business. That when you have a culture that's engaging, you create the opportunity to do something extraordinary and then invite great people in to make a contribution. It kind of fits with what Viktor Frankl said when he said that meaning is why people choose to make commitments. When they find meaning in their lives, they're more engaged. Well, we can't give people meaning. People find meaning. So the leader's role in creating an engaging culture is you have to ask, is what you're asking them to do so worthwhile, so emotionally engaging that they're willing to turn their life upside down to do it? And I think the answer to that is largely no. If I have 65 leaders who can't articulate the future in a compelling way, and you say, come turn your life upside down so we can get where we already are, who's going to do that? Or, you, you know, teachers like to talk about, uh, teachers as leaders, like to talk about disengaged students, but they don't talk about how their classes are boring. 
or how grades inhibit learning. They only talk about the students aren't what they used to be. Well, isn't, isn't it our best teacher in our past who created an environment of learning so much that we actually wanted to come to class and feel like we were pushed and couldn't help ourselves but get engaged? I mean, I had a, a professor in law school. In the worst class in law school, it's federal taxation. And he was so good that by the end of the class, I thought I wanted to be a tax lawyer. I would have been the worst tax lawyer in the world. It took me two years to recover. But when you create an environment where people see they can find meaning in their lives and are fully engaged, you can do anything. So I would want to help leaders create a view of their responsibility, where their responsibility is to create an opportunity to do something meaningful and then attract people who are interested and committed to accomplishing something that they believe is meaningful. So we provide opportunities, and I think that's the big deal. So for someone who is maybe not at the top of an organization, how would you recommend they start casting that type of vision to attract that type of person? Because I could see how if you're starting something totally new, there's a lot more ability to do something like that. Doesn't it become a little bit more difficult when you are in a leadership position lower down in the organization? Or would you say there's still opportunity to begin reinventing what you're about even at those lower levels? Joshua, that's a great question. I think it becomes a little bit of an excuse, though. Mm. Let me tell you why. So let's take a big regional bank, okay? And if you look at a big regional bank, a retail bank, they have lots of branches. If you were to do an analysis of those branches, you will see that there are branch banks that even with bad rules and bad culture and and stultifying kinds of compensation systems that are silly. There are managers in those branch banks. You walk into one branch and, and you, it, it's as good as any bank in the world because some leader just wasn't going to be limited by the rules that everybody else feels hampered by. You'll find one, one store in a mall where the leader just provides such an extraordinary experience, you wouldn't think it's part of the same chain. In almost every company, there are exemplary teams that just find a way around the morass that other people find limiting. They're just people who just refuse to be limited by the culture. And so if you go into enough companies, you're going to find people who, who just at every level find a way to create an extraordinary team who just don't know what they can't do. So I think that's, that's part of the issue is starting to believe that it, you can do it. It's too easy to say, if only he would, I will. If only she would, I will. Or point up and say, I can't do it because I'm not the CEO. I will tell you there are lots of people who aren't the CEO who create extraordinary teams. And I think the other part is, isn't it our responsibility as leaders, if we are lucky enough that people trust us to lead, to try to find a way to make a difference for the organization we work for, even if it's just a difference that our team can make. If I'm a teacher in a bad school, can I become an extraordinary teacher in a bad school? And so I think the idea that because I'm not high enough in the hierarchy, it's, it's difficult. I, I don't think that's true. I think it's different, but not necessarily that difficult. Sometimes it's easier to fly under the radar. And in fact, in my experience, most great organizational change doesn't happen at the top. 
It happens with a small group somewhere in the organization who just doesn't know that they can't do something. And they make changes that catch on, become viral, and then change the organization. And I like that you said that because one of the things that you said earlier is that leaders are supposed to give people opportunity. And from that opportunity, people can choose how they respond. What I appreciate about what you've just communicated is that same thing is true for leaders. Leaders are given an opportunity and they can choose how to respond. So no matter at what point you are in any given organization, wherever you are on the org chart, you have an opportunity to do great things and you also have the opportunity to not take advantage of your opportunity. So I, I appreciate that. One other thing that you've brought up or maybe that you've kind of talked around a little bit is the idea of being able to to measure people. And I don't think you really brought it up, but something you said jogged my thinking about this. How do you choose love and and bring some of that personalization and understanding of the individual and still hold up some of those metrics that have become so important in our world today for good reason? Well, I think the answer lies in the word metric. Okay, so in your question in the beginning of it, you said measure people, which is which is an interesting question, right? And you're measuring people's performance, I think, is, is what you meant. But the question, why do you measure performance? Well, you measure performance largely to learn. Now, some people would argue you measure performance to ensure somebody's doing a good job, but that's really, I think, the wrong reason. It's, it's not to evaluate people just for the purpose of evaluation. Metrics in general are measured to get better. When I was a, a Baldridge examiner, we measured almost everything in companies, but it wasn't just a measure. It was so we could reduce variation or we could increase engagement or we could do something meaningful. You know, as, a, as an athlete, we measure our performance and we analyze that, those metrics so that we can understand how to get better and set priorities about our improvement ideas. It's the same thing's true in business. I think many times we've lost track of why we do the measurements we do. And I think I've seen that some, even in this COVID world we live in today, where people are working from home and I see managers ask, well, how do I know they're working if I don't measure this? Well, do you trust them to work or not to trust? Or if the reason you measure is distrust, I mean, the only way to create trust is to give trust, right? We don't trust people who don't trust us. So if we're sitting at home wondering whether they're working and we want to measure their productivity to make sure they're working, the problem is much bigger than the metrics. The problem is what we think of people, right? And so if we measure for improvement, the question is, do we use those metrics to improve or do we use those metrics for other reasons? In the old days, when you used to go into hotels and they would have surveys in your room and they would say, would you fill this thing out? And would you hand it into the front desk or would you go online and, and hand in the survey? And I would always ask people in the hospitality industry, why can't I just leave it in my room? Why can't I just leave the survey in my room and you pick it up? Why do I have to go send it to the front desk? And they would uniformly, well, if you leave it in your room, if it's about housekeeping, they won't turn it in. They'll just throw it away if you say something negative about housekeeping. And I would say, is that a genetic defect that they're going to throw feedback away? It's a metric. Why wouldn't they just use it to improve? And largely, the fear that's created by those metrics is not because that we're getting feedback. It's because what we do with that feedback. And so people 
who measure their performance for the purposes of learning and improvement are almost never fearful of it, or it's not contrary to the idea that you have positive relationships with them. I think the problem is, what do we do with the feedback? And if we're using it to express distrust, or we're using it to beat people over the head with it, well, it's not surprising that people see metrics as something that's antithetical to building a a culture based on positive emotion. Really? The whole total quality movement in manufacturing were about using metrics in team-based atmospheres to increase engagement. It's just the opposite. Well, Gary, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Before we finish up, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners, either things that you'd like to reiterate that we've talked about today or something that we didn't get a chance to talk about today that relates to your new book, Choose Love, Not Fear? I think there are so many things, Joshua, as you and I have talked about in the past, so many things to talk about in this that I hope it's time for an awakening. So it's time that we realize that leadership is not a set of styles or tasks, but a reflection of who we are as people. And the best way to become a better leader is really to become a better person and a better uh, collaborator and somebody who can bring great minds together to solve big problems. There's a sign that one of my favorite people in the world has in her office. Pam Landworth runs a charity in Orlando called Gift Kits the World. And in her office is this sign that says, it's not about me. And I think it is the best advice you could get in many ways. And she looks at it when she walks out. And this is a a charity that's voted as the best-run charity in the world. It takes 6,000 families with very sick or terminally ill kids to Disney if it's their last wish and pays for their family for a week. And if you go there, I, I... I cry every time I go there. It's the most amazing place in the kids' village that I've ever seen. And she walks out every day and says, it's not about me. Too much of leadership is about me and the leader. And what do I need to do differently? And really, I think that if we took leadership and stood it on its head and realized that it's far more about those we hope to lead, because the only thing great leaders have in common are inspired followers. I think when we get, we think less about ourselves and more about others, and we realize that the culture that we create and how we relate to each other has much more to do with performance than we sometimes think, I think we're going to be hugely better off. Joshua, I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to come on your show today. Absolutely. And before you go, would you mind sharing with people where they can go to learn more about you, your work, and especially choose love, not fear? If you go to GaryHeil.com, you can learn about me, or you can go to the Washington Speakers Bureau. They would represent me for the last 30 years. Great people. And I think the same with Ryan. You can, you can find Ryan on social media, you know, or on LinkedIn or at the Washington Speakers Bureau also. And the book's on Amazon. And I would love to talk to anybody who wants to talk about these kinds of issues. It's been a passion for us for most of my life. And I really appreciate what you're doing, Joshua, to make it better known. I appreciate that. Well, Gary, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Joshua. If you would like to get connected with Gary, I encourage you to check out the show notes below or at lifeasleadership.com slash one zero zero. Now let's go ahead and go to today's three 
key takeaways. The first one is this. Leaders tend to talk a better game than they play. I don't know if that's true for you, but one of the things that Gary recommended each person do is to better understand the difference between what you espouse and the way you act. So I encourage you to reflect a little bit on that and think about, do you talk a better game than you play? And if so, what are some things that you can do to flip that, to begin matching your actions and your words more accurately? The second key takeaway is that you are not in the business of motivating people. You are in the business of providing opportunities. You can only create an environment where motivated people come and maximize their potential. And the third and final key takeaway is this. Most great organizational change comes from a small group of people within the organization who don't know that they can't do something. So my recommendation to you would be to begin pressing on some of those things that you consider barriers and to see if some of them are just things that you're putting up in your own mind rather than things that are really holding you back from being creative and building a culture that really does encourage that opportunity and encourage motivation in other people. Now, on the topic of matching words with actions, I encourage you to come back for our next episode because we're going to have someone who really walks the talk when it comes to business growth. He's just written a book called Grow Like a Pro, but he's someone who has really helped organizations grow multiple times over and has been recognized for that success. So I encourage you to come back then. And until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well. <laughs>